Hello everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you, as usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, on this 16th of October 2014, I am delighted to welcome to the programme Dr. Angus Manouge, who is Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and currently President of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Dr. Manouge earned his BA in England at the University of Warwick, and his MA and PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Madison. He joined Concordia University in 1991 and his research interests include philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, Christian apologetics and the work of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Manoj, welcome to The Mind Renewed. Thank you very much indeed for freely agreeing to join us today. Julian, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Now, I'm just going to say, excuse me for putting it like that, saying freely agree to join us today. But (laughs) I thought that would be a a kind of fitting introduction to the subject that we're going to be talking about, which is the subject of free will, human free will. And that is something that I think most of us tend not to think about, particularly in, in deep philosophical terms. We pretty much all of us simply believe that we have this thing, this capacity, this ability, whatever we want to call it, of free will. We experience moment by moment, so we believe anyway, making decisions, choosing one thing rather than another, obviously not absolutely freely, because we know there are all sorts of things that do in fact influence in various ways. But nevertheless, in the final analysis, we tend to think there's a core or there's a center to us that really does make decisions that really are free in some meaningful sense. And yet... There is a tradition of doubting the existence of this free will, and uh, I think something of a fashion these days for doing that. And uh, I I don't know what you think, but I personally think this is inspired by the prevalence of materialistic philosophy in our culture generally, and of course, and in the academy. So um, that's the subject that we're going to be discussing. What is free will? Do we have it? Do we not have it? And does that matter anyway? But I'd like to start, if I may, Dr. Manoj, by asking you to share with us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So could you tell us something about your background and how it is that you came to be a professional philosopher who's also a Christian? Well, I was very fortunate on the philosophy side that my sixth form college in England, Farnham College, offered philosophy as an elective. So I took that. And then I decided I wanted to go to the University of Warwick to uh, study philosophy. And at that time, I was not a Christian. Uh, I did, though, start to visit the United States. I was an exchange student. And the woman who is now uh, my wife started taking me to church and introduced me to Christian doctrine, uh, Lutheran faith. I'm an adult convert to the Christian church. And for me, uh, it was wonderful because this was the first time I had heard Christian teaching expressed in a coherent way that really related to my whole uh, life. And I still very much treasure theology as well as philosophy. And in my philosophical work, I try as hard as I can to integrate theology and philosophy and to consider those kinds of issues. That's very interesting, actually, because I wanted to ask you about the relationship between Christianity and philosophy, because the philosopher William Lane Craig often says that there is these days something of a renaissance in Christian philosophy, and he often traces that back to the influence of Alvin Plantinga in the 1960s. And I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that there is this fruitful relationship. So how would you describe that relationship? Really what's unique about Christian philosophy is having the courage to see our reason as a servant of our faith. In other words, instead of just reacting to materialists or other skeptics or other religions that we disagree with, we actually trace out the consequences of a biblical worldview 
and defend them and consider how to then respond to other uh, positions from a really well-developed worldview. What hadn't worked for Christians was to simply set the Bible directly against developed worldviews. doesn't work. You have to develop a worldview that's just as well thought out uh, as theirs is. And, and you see this in the past with people like St. Augustine and Aquinas. And what Alvin Plantinger did is he started it all over again in the 20th century. Uh, and now we have these wonderful, thriving philosophical associations. We have the Society of Christian Philosophers, and we have the Evangelical Philosophical Society and several others in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, in your bio, you mentioned the importance of C.S. Lewis for you. So is his work important from a philosophical point of view? Yeah, incredibly important. Walter Hooper said that C.S. Lewis was the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. And what he meant by that was that Lewis thought out what Christianity meant for every area of our life, not just for personal piety and our individual faith life, but for every area of thought. Um, So he had a response to issues as diverse as uh, capital punishment or economics, and he thought through ethical issues, the philosophy of mind, uh, metaphysics, and so on. He had a systematic Christian approach to every issue. So even though he was not a professional philosopher, he's still a great inspiration to many people who are. So would you categorize him as nevertheless a significant Christian philosopher? I I think so. You know, when people say, well, he didn't have a PhD in philosophy, I mean, neither did Socrates. Um, I I don't think we should base philosophical ability on whether you have certain bits of paper. Absolutely. And as Victor Rappert said, his philosophical instincts are second to none. So sometimes he could not produce an argument with a technical rigor that Alvin Plantinger could, but he could get the basic argument. He had the right idea, and then it was left for others to sort out the details. And you've already mentioned one of your areas of specialism as being the philosophy of mind just in the the last couple of minutes. And uh, obviously, that's going to be relevant to what we're talking about today. But I think for those of us who are not particularly familiar with what that involves, could you give us a basic idea of what the philosophy of mind is? Yeah, the philosophy of mind tries to understand what's distinctive about the mind. It has some rather amazing properties. Uh, We have our own point of view on the world, subjectivity, which a rock or a tree doesn't have. We have intentionality, which means that we can think about other things. But it doesn't seem that the state of a computer or a rock is about anything else, whereas our thoughts are. Uh, And we have rationality, which means that we can consider various reasons and draw practical and theoretical conclusions. And it seems, and it's the universal default assumption of human beings, that they have some measure of free will, that there are some decisions which are really up to them. And so the philosophy of mind tries to figure out what is the nature of these remarkable features of the mind, and then how do they relate to the rest of the physical world. Right. So that leads us actually really nicely into the subject then of free will. And I, I have to be a bit more precise about it, because what it is that you're arguing for is libertarian free will, which we'll get onto in a moment. And um, I very strongly believe in this as well. And this, of course, is libertarian in a strictly philosophical sense, not a political sense. Um, so perhaps we should start with a definition of what precisely we're talking about here. How would you define this libertarian free will? Well, first of all, the will itself is the power of the mind to direct its attention, what things you choose to think about, 
and to make decisions as to what acts you will do, what reasons you will follow. Now, what makes it libertarian is that it is an active power of the mind conceived as a mental substance. An active power means that it's something that you begin. It's not something which you were made to do passively because of some preceding event. Okay, so if you think, for example, about an avalanche that results from an earthquake, well, the avalanche is completely passive and is simply the result of that prior event. The idea of libertarian free will is that you own and originate your decisions. We can actually say that they're your decisions, and it was through your exercise of active power that they occurred. Mm-hmm. In a little bit, we're going to get on to this question of what a mental substance might mean. But I just want to ask you, if this thing or whatever it is, this capacity we have, the will to make decisions is operating, presumably that doesn't mean that we are unaffected by things that are going on around us and in our in our brains in this world. No, it certainly doesn't. And uh, the great philosopher Leibniz, in his account of libertarian free will, said that all sorts of other factors, they will incline without necessitating. And that includes the, the physical state of us. They will all put us in a particular context. And, and certainly notice that we don't consider every possible reason for act, an action. We only consider a few. And that may be dictated by our life experience, our genes, or other things going on in us. So we have a limited free will. But the claim is that when we have several competing options, uh, and none of them is in and of itself decisive, they have strengths and weaknesses, the final deciding factor is the person, him or herself. They're the ones who decide which reason to act on, which reasons uh, to reject. So we're going to be looking at this then over the the next, I don't know, the next hour, I suppose. And I'm just wondering if you could sort of clarify for us why you feel this is important. I mean, obviously, I could say why I I think it's important, but I think it'd be interesting to hear from you why you think that libertarian free will is such an important subject to or an idea to defend. I think three main reasons. Uh, One is I think that libertarian free will is tied up with what it means for us to be rational beings. Uh, When we look at a computer, a computer is designed to act in accordance with the rules of logic and arithmetic, but it's purely passive, and we don't think the computer reasons for itself. Free will uh, seems to involve this ability to break free of this ordinary contingent order, look at various reasons, and to try to decide which is the best one to follow. Um, If we're not independent of the causal order, we simply can't break free uh, and do that. So I think that the kind of rationality we credit ourselves with is closely tied to free will. Uh, The second reason is a moral reason. Um, I think that libertarian free will is necessary if you're going to take seriously moral responsibility in the sense that finally it's up to you what action that you do. Because on other views of human beings, Although you may be causally responsible for doing something, you can always go back to other prior factors outside of your control, and they're just as causally responsible. So you don't get the idea that anything you ever do is really up to a person, uh, and that's catastrophic for holding people responsible and for the operation of the law. Uh, There's now quite a few philosophers of law, for example, who really don't think that the purpose of punishment 
is actually to give people their just desserts for a crime that they committed. It's simply something that you do because it will have better social consequences. The, the reason is purely utilitarian. It does not um, have anything to do with your deserving that punishment. And a third reason, I think that the very nature of love, this is for Christians in particular, this is terribly important. Um, one of our strongest intuitions is that love cannot be compelled. Uh, there used to be a, a doll you could buy called Chatty Cathy, and you'd pull a cord, and the doll would say, I love you. <laughs> well, nobody, nobody thinks that the doll, in fact, does love you, and it seems the nature of love has built within it the ability to defect. And this is terribly important, of course, in Christian theology, because this allows us to account for the origin of evil in the world without God being the origin of that evil. Uh, if we have no free will, but God does, then it looks as if God would be responsible for the evil in the world. But if we have free will, then we can see how we could produce evil. Then we need some account, okay, why is free will valuable? Well, it's, it's valuable if our God is a God of love, and making beings in his image means that he wants us to be creatures of love. He wants us to love him and to love our neighbor. Um, and it seems that free will is tied up with that ability to love. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You, you brought up that image there of the doll. And, of course, immediately jumped into my mind was that famous film, The Stepford Wives. And, of course, the reason why that works <laughs> is because we're so appalled by the idea of it. Um, so, yeah, indeed. Now, we're talking about this thing called libertarian free will. So, we're, obviously, we're not saying just free will. That implies that there must be some other account of what free will is. And uh, I'm, I'm aware of one of them, which is usually referred to as compatibilism. So could you tell us what compatibilism is and if you think that it's got anything going for it at all and perhaps if there are any other, other ideas out there as to how we should understand free will? Yeah, I used to be a compatibilist. It was the popular uh -huh. view in, in philosophy for a long time. What it basically tries to say is that all your decisions are passively caused just like everything else. But however, we can still distinguish between somebody being free and unfree if you're free, it's because your decisions are caused by your reasons, by what you want, by what you believe. If you're unfree, well, then it would be like, for example, that the drug addict who believes that taking this drug will kill them and actually perhaps in some sense wants to stop, but still keeps on taking the drug. And so the decisions are no longer responsive to their reasons. And so a lot of philosophers think that you can have determinism and still have free will, Free will means that your decisions are caused in the right way, namely by your own uh, reasons. So this is the idea of would it be proper function, that you're properly functioning as a human being, and if you're doing so, then those decisions, we call those free, but if you're not properly functioning, for whatever reason that might be, uh, accident, injury, drugs, as you say, then that somehow makes you not free, have I got that right? That would be a way of putting it. Yeah, one of my professors at Madison had, had a view rather like that. In other words, it's the, it's the proper functioning of the decision-making apparatus is the way he would like to put it. Uh, and as long as that was happening, then we count you free. If it wasn't because you had somehow compulsive beliefs and desires or something like this, then we wouldn't count you as free. 
Okay, so defending this libertarian free will, which we're going to tease apart even more in the next few minutes, I want to throw at you some rebuttals to this idea. And I think this will be quite useful to sort of test the idea, bring out the idea. So there are various ways in which people do argue against the idea of libertarian free will. I I probably haven't got all of them here, but I want to ask you about a few. The most popular one, I think, is the idea that all of our actions, uh, whether they're physical actions, mental actions, are fully determined by natural causes. And so what we think of as libertarian free will is, in fact, some kind of illusion. And I came across the author Daniel Wegner, who says in his book, The Illusion of Conscious Will, and I'm just going to quote this little sentence from him, it usually seems that we consciously will our voluntary actions, but this is an illusion. (laughs) So how do you respond to that? Yeah, he uh, Wagner takes the view that our, you know, we simply have these previews of what we will do, and then it's caused just by our brain. He actually, though, is saying that we don't have free will. That's a little bit of a different position. I would say that falls in the category of hard determinism. But the real issue here is in that what you count as natural causes depends on your metaphysics. For typical materialists, they only allow events, and events passively occur because of prior events. For every event, there's a preceding cause. The libertarian has a fundamentally different metaphysics. He recognizes the idea of substances, things, which can continue as the same kind of thing over time. And these things have capacities and powers. So you might think about the capacity and powers of a magnet, for example. That's a substance which has certain magnetic properties. Uh, And philosophers like uh, Richard Swinburne and uh, E.J. Lowe argue that you could make sense of everything that occurs in nature using an ontology that recognizes the primary force in causation as at the level of substances. Now, substances are quite different. They're independent entities, and they can initiate things because of their own causal powers. Sometimes they will act passively, okay? Uh, And in the case of typical physical substances, they do. So if, if something dissolves in sulfuric acid, that's purely passive. But there is no problem with the idea of a substance which also has active causal powers, and that's the claim that's made about uh, rational beings with free will. Okay, so the the fundamental difference here is to just bring in a different metaphysics. When you understand that metaphysics, all of a sudden the idea of libertarian free will makes perfect sense. Okay, um, this is related to the idea of an immaterial substance, I believe. And so uh, if I've got you correct here, so we'll we'll be coming on to that in a few minutes. I just want to throw a quote at you from Wegner to see how you react to this. Let me just quote it. Um, He's saying it would be logically possible for us to find out why it is that we choose to read his book. And he says, we could do it this way. A team of scientific psychologists could study your reported thoughts, emotions, motives, your genetics, your history of learning, experience, development, your social situation, culture, your memories, reaction times, your physiology, neuroanatomy, lots of other things as well. If they somehow had access to all the information they could ever want, the assumption of psychology is that they would, they could uncover the mechanisms that give rise to all your behavior and so could certainly explain why you picked up this book at this moment. Now, to a lot of people, that would seem very, very convincing. But from what you said, you seem to be doing some kind of end run around all of that and saying, no, we need to look at it in a different way. 
Yeah, I mean, for one thing, his idea that you could um, use people's reported thoughts is, is actually inconsistent with his view, as Richard Swinburne points out, because his view actually implies epiphenomenalism, where the mind does not have any causal impact on the world. And as Swinburne points out, uh, when scientists study the brain because they want to correlate mental and physical states, they always still rely on the conscious reports of subjects. However, you can only rely on those conscious reports if you think that the conscious state is actually the cause of your saying what it is. Okay, so there's a, there's a serious problem that Swinburne has, has shown in, uh, in, in, in Wagner's work there. Uh, but the other thing is, asking people for their mental states, well, but do they include free ones? If they do, that's not going to show that what we went on to do was uh, determined by another factor. And in fact, there are experiments that have been done to try and look at that. Uh, one thing that impresses me, for example, is there has been a lot of work looking at people who have neurological deficits or problems, uh, people who have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and things like this. And some of the therapies uh, require them to choose to think about an alternative. So this is the person who's always worrying about whether they locked the door or not, even though they know that they did. And the therapy requires them to refocus on some other action when they feel that sense of unease. They can report to you that that's what they were doing and thinking about, but it sure looks like that that was a free choice of theirs. Mm. Okay, well, what about the other side of this equation? Because another approach that people bring up is uh, to say, well, we've got to factor in indeterminacy so it might be put in this kind of way okay so you say there's this thing called free will the trouble is there are only two fundamental types of cause that could give rise to our decisions one is this determinate kind of cause we've just been talking about where all our, our decisions are t determined by the chain of you know physical cause and effect events leading up to whatever action it is we take place but there is the other side of this equation the indeterminate causes our decisions may be in part the result of I don't know, quantum level sort of fluctuations or something in our brains. But, you know, that just means that all our decisions are the result of still unthinking, you know, chance events. So either way, that's not what we mean by libertarian free will. It doesn't give us libertarian free will. And there are only these two things to consider. Right. Well, according to naturalism, those are the only two alternatives because they only recognize undirected causes. So you've only got chance and necessity and you've only got passive event causation. But of course, again, that's not the view of the libertarian, because the idea of active power is the idea of a directed cause. Okay, this is the idea of an intelligent cause, and intelligent causes don't work in that same kind of way. Um, so I, I would say that that objection is simply assumes the materialistic worldview that the libertarian rejects. So would this be what is often called agent causation? Yeah, and I mean, it's not a matter of being necessitated by anything else or even, you know, chance. The deciding factor is the agent, him or herself. That although they have various reasons that incline, finally, it is the agent who focuses on and endorses uh, one or some of those reasons and rejects uh, the others. The agent is a deciding factor. So there is a kind of necessity there, but it's the agent doing the necessitation, not the agent being necessitated. That's the really critical difference. 
I can sort of imagine somebody coming up with a response to that by saying, well, you know, we have no example of that sort of causation in the world. I mean, other than human beings themselves, but of course we can't point to that because that would be circular reasoning. So because we haven't got any other example of this, does it really mean anything? Well, I mean, it comes back again to your ontology. If you can understand all causation in terms of substances, Richard Swinburne says, in fact, that appealing to substances will do a much better job of explaining the laws of nature because you'll be able to explain why regularities in events occur due to the capacities and powers of substances. So the idea of having agents that have certain powers is not special pleading. Um, when you get down to quantum level, you'll have to say that some elementary particles just do certain things. Why? Well, because of their powers and capacities. And so this is saying that this is a fundamental kind of causal power. Uh, and we need it if we're going to explain some distinctive things that human beings uh, can do. And of course, it also fits very well with theism because God can do certain things that other kinds of uh, entity cannot do. But wouldn't it be the case that with those other kinds of examples, you know, you'd point to a subatomic particle and you'd say, well, that's got certain powers. You'd point to a magnet and you say that's got certain powers. But in the kind of case that we're talking about, can you actually point to the agent, the immaterial agent and say that's got causal powers? That sort of feels like a different kind of argument there. Well, I mean, one way that we argue for things is in terms of what's necessary to explain certain of our abilities. If you look at the research that was done on neuroplasticity and um, exploiting the power of the mind to refocus on alternative behaviors, and this would actually change pathways in the, in the brain, it looks like there, this is empirically driven. We have very good reason for thinking that consciousness does not reduce to any physical property of the brain, and yet conscious attention is necessary for those kinds of cognitive therapies. It's, it's used, for example, uh, with depression, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder I mentioned, um, arachnophobia, uh, dyslexia, Tourette syndrome. And in every case, the most important factor is that you consciously focus on some alternative behavior or you do something differently. And if consciousness cannot be reduced to physical states of the brain, and there are many, many good arguments for that view, then we have very good reason to think that we're talking about a fundamentally different kind of power. And a few minutes ago, you actually mentioned that God also has this fundamentally different kind of power. Would you say that the existence of God is actually necessary for this libertarian free will argument to work? Well, I think that the idea of libertarian free will certainly fits best in a theistic picture of reality, hmm. because God himself is the premier agent. He is an immaterial mind with libertarian free will, since clearly nothing is making God do what he's doing. He is the, uh, the origin of, of various decisions that he makes. And so once you accept the existence of such a God, and if you accept the teaching that human beings are made in God's image, it's very plausible and very credible that we have similar, though more limited powers, because there is a similarity between us uh, and God. Whether that's an absolutely tight logical connection is debatable. There, there have been a few individuals, most recently John Searle has come around to seeing that you do need libertarian free will to explain our reasoning. 
And as a naturalist, then, he just has to say that somehow the right kind of subject, a non-human self, he says, and the right kind of libertarian free will emerges from the brain as a higher order uh, state. Um, so you will find a minority of naturalists who, who will, will endorse it. But it's very uncomfortable, as J.P. Moreland and I have, have both argued, because if you are a naturalist, the problem is that your brain states always seem to preempt your mind doing anything new uh, or different. This is known as the exclusion argument in the uh, uh, philosophy of mind. It seems as if every conscious state is just the passive result of your brain state. The brain is really doing all the work. And it's very hard to avoid then the same kind of conclusion as, as Daniel Wegner that really your conscious states are just previews of your behavior. Um, I have come across various Christian writers who seem to speak in these sort of emergent terms. And one guy whose book I came across, a guy called William Hasker, was arguing you know, that this capacity sort of arises out of complexity. Are there many Christians who think along these lines? Well, you've got a couple of different views. Um, Hasker is an emergent dualist, and he wants to say that a mental substance somehow arises from sufficiently complicated brains. And then you also have the Christian physicalists, uh, people like Van Inwagen and um, Kevin Corcoran and, and Nancy uh, Murphy and, and some other individuals like that, who... Um, you know, want to talk about these higher order emergent uh, mental states and yet at the same time claim that we're purely physical beings. That's not Hasker's view. He's, he certainly is uh, a dualist. So, yeah, there are some people who are trying to make their accounts sort of fit a little bit more with, this, with the standard science uh, of the day. I don't think that's the right way to go because I think that as Christians we should base our anthropology by understanding the nature of God and what it is for human beings to be made uh, in, in his image. Do you think it's reasonable or I suppose I would say rationally justified for people to believe in libertarian free will even though they don't have these kinds of uh, sophisticated arguments uh, that you're putting forward or, or in, indeed any argument whatsoever and I mean I'm here thinking of things that I've read where it says uh, something like you know just because we think we experience x y or z doesn't actually mean that it's true our our senses um you know often deceive us so we can't just appeal to our experience on this kind of question but i'm thinking can't we take a position a bit like the philosopher alvin plantinger and say something like well my experience of libertarian free will is just as certain for me as my experience of say the past or other minds and things like that and unless i've got some really good reason to believe that that's not true then i'm actually quite rational to go with my basic experience on this i mean how, how do you react to that kind of argument yeah, I, I think it's very well taken. I mean, Thomas Reed's approach in, in responding to David Hume's uh, skepticism uh, about the self and many other things is that we, we seem to have a, a stock of natural default judgments about ourselves and, and, and the world, and they seem to be presuppositions of rational inquiry. And so we would have to have extremely 
good reasons to reject them. And the average person who hasn't really thought through it one way or another, but finds himself naturally thinking of himself as having libertarian free will, which even most naturalists admit is the default uh, opinion of people throughout history and around the world. Uh, they're entirely justified in, in, in holding on to that view. The burden of proof is always on the skeptic, just like in the Cartesian case, he says there could be an evil deceiving demon. Okay, well, but what's the evidence that that's really going on? Unless you can convince me of this, I'm perfectly justified in, in, in believing what I naturally do. Hmm. Well, I think that's a, a relief for many of us <laughs> that we can we can believe ourselves and hold ourselves as rational to believe in such things as free will without necessarily having a, a whole massive page of bullet points listing a load of arguments. So that's <laughs> that's great news. Um, now, a lot of what we've been saying so far, we've uh, sort of been touching on this business of the immaterial mind. Would you say that the immaterial mind is equivalent to what has historically been called the soul? Well, there may be some subtle differences when you think of biblical anthropology. That describes us in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty-three, as a, really a union of uh, body, soul, and, uh, and and spirit. And there are questions there which probably should be left to the best Bible scholars. But I, at least, tend to think that it's most natural to think of the soul as the enduring substance. Uh, and the idea here of a substance is, is a continuance, something that persists as the same thing over time. Uh, and our reason for believing in such an entity is that our thoughts seem to always be tied to the life of one particular individual. You can't have ownerless thoughts. You know, in a library, you've got books, but they're not thoughts. Thoughts cannot be detached from thinkers. And so metaphysically, it's natural to think of thoughts as what are called modes of thinkers. So you and I may both think that the Eiffel Tower is in Paris, but my thought that the Eiffel Tower is in Paris belongs to me and yours belongs uh, to you. And so you need to have some explanation of the way that particular thoughts are unified with one subject. And I would argue as well, in order to account for uh, the ability to reason over time because it takes time to reason and it makes no sense of reasoning if the person who has the uh, conclusion is not the same person who entertained the original uh, premises. You've kind of already talked about this but I think a concern that might be in some people's mind is really a kind of problem with the use of the word substance so perhaps you could help us out a little bit more about that I mean if we're talking about an immaterial substance that sounds like a contradiction in terms so could you just explain that a bit more to us well I don't think that it I mean because you've got Thomas Hobbes who, who thought that the idea of an incorporeal being was nonsense on stilts but I <laughs> I, I think that the I <laughs> that the idea of a, of a mental substance makes perfect sense. I mean, if you go back to the writings of Descartes and he goes through his um, analysis of all his experience and thoughts and realizes that he could be deceived about lots of things, finally says, I think, therefore I am. Why? Well, because his thoughts cannot be detached from him. So the one thing which is most certain about him is that he is the thinker of those thoughts, that he is the bearer of those thoughts. And a substance is something which is a bearer of properties and which can persist over time. So the idea of a mental substance is simply the idea of a substance that can bear thoughts over time. And it seems to be required for us to understand why 
all and only our thoughts belong to us. Uh, and also, you know, how it is that we persist over the time it takes to do some thinking and why we're the ones who are responsible, for example, for an action that we did yesterday. So we need to get away from the idea of actually trying to picture what this substance is by you know, as a goo or a set of pebbles or something like that. That's just distracting yes. us really from the, the idea that you're expressing here. Yeah, I mean, the arguments for it are largely two kinds. Uh, introspection, we are able to discern this unity so that we can have many experiences at once and we realize that it's the same eye that has them. So, for example, you can feel the warmth of sun on your temple, you can hear the birds singing, uh, you can be reading a, a book and so forth, and you're aware that these are all experiences of you. That implies there has to be something identical. It'd be very different if they were all somehow on different tracks, because then there'd be no one subject to wear of them all. So our experience as well, but behind that as well, it's a transcendental argument. That is, what will make the most sense of the experiences that we have? You know, and Justin Barrett in his book, Born Believers, says that, you know, children just have a default theory of mind. He also interestingly says that they uh, default to naturally coming to believe in a God. And they use that in their own self-understanding and, and in the understanding of, of other people. And what lies behind that is the idea that philosophers would, would call um, mental substance. So if we have this mental substance, or we are this mental substance, there is this I that we're talking about here. That reminds me of the kind of thing that C.S. Lewis wrote about in his brilliant book, Miracles, where he seemed to speak about human beings as having minds that are truly supernatural, that are not part of nature. And he does kind of offer a loose definition of what he means by nature. Perhaps you could tell us what you think by nature. Um, and so when we perform acts of the will, we are sort of creatively inputting into the universe in some ways that's analogous to God's own creative activity, like, like mini miracles almost. I mean, do you feel that I've, I've got him right there? Do you see it a bit like that? That's the way that Lewis talks in miracles. Of course, there's some relativity here because one could define anything as natural that God created, in which case angels would be natural and so would our souls be. But I think the reason that Lewis said that was that he wanted to explain how when we reason, we break free from the ordinary machine-like level of causation because he said that well, when we reason, we have to access, for example, that something logically follows. Uh, when I think A equals B and B equals C, and I conclude logically that A equals C, I must reach that conclusion because I see that it follows, a logical insight into an eternal necessary truth, uh, not just because I was in certain previous brain states. Um, if everything that we do is simply the result of those prior states, it doesn't seem that our logical insight can be what explains our, our, our thinking. This kind of brings me to neuroscience because it's often claimed that, uh, you know, the findings of neuroscience can map what's happening in our brains and therefore that uh, correlates with uh, the various actions and decisions we, we make. And so it's all sort of explained away by that. Um, and therefore, I think the kind of view that you're expressing here can sort of seem old fashioned and not very scientific. <laughs> um, I know that's obviously a very popular view of this. And what, how, how do you react to that kind of accusation? Well, one thing is to notice that there have been a number of eminent neuroscientists like, like Wilder Penfield, uh, Jeffrey Schwartz, Miriam Beauregard, and uh, John Eccles, who were dualists. And, and I think what's very interesting is 
that when uh, neuroscientists make correlations between our experiences and thoughts, they can observe our brain states using various uh, uh, fancy brain scans today. But in order to make the initial correlation, they still have to actually ask the subject. And they cannot observe the experience or the thought that the subject uh, is having. And they make the correlation on that basis. Mm. And the experience or thought as a mental entity is really only accessible to the subject. So I think the illusion that, that occurs to many people is because they spend all of their time uh, just looking at the physical side, but they say, well, that's all there is. And yet their interpretation of what those physical states mean always goes back to at some time finding out from subjects what the experience uh, was. And Penfield, for example, uh, did famous experiments where he stimulated people's brains with electrodes, uh, which would lead to passively producing behaviors or memories. Uh, but he noticed that the patients could tell the difference between on those occasions when they chose to do something and when he made them do it. And he concluded there's no contradiction in the idea that, you know, one might make somebody do something by stimulating their nervous system. And the idea that on other occasions, the reason they do what they do uh, is because of a, uh, a free choice of their mind. And so he was perfectly willing to be uh, a dualist, and yet he was a world-class neuroscientist. Uh, and, and Schwartz and Beauregard likewise hold dualistic views because of the evidence from these uh, cognitive therapists uh, exploiting neuroplasticity, where it is conscious attention, conscious refocusing, which is a very necessary part of the therapy if you want to change the structure of people's brain. Stroke therapy, for example, uh, uses this, where you uh, lose the ability to use, for example, your, the limbs on your right side because of a deficit in the, uh, the left cortex, but what can happen through conscious attempts to move the affected limb is that eventually the other side of the brain starts to take control of that limb as, as well as, as the other one. And these therapies all require conscious attention. So you're saying that we actually do have no evidence, and in a way we can actually not get at any evidence that suggests that all of our decisions and actions are accounted for purely by brain activity. Well, I mean, there have been attempts to do so, you know, like Benjamin Liebe's famous experiments on, on free will, but they, they really haven't stood up to scrutiny. You know, in mm. his case, it seems that you, you have an urge to act, and then later on you make this decision as to whether you're going to flex your, your, your hand or not. But the fact is that the experimental subjects were primed. They were told that when you experience this urge, you can either flex your fingers or you can veto it. And um, the, the results are fully compatible with the idea of free will. Uh, J.P. Morland, who's been looking at this stuff for decades, points out that really uh, the dualist and non-dualist positions are empirically equivalent. That is, that they can explain all the same observations. So you can't decisively knock out one or the other. Uh, what matters, though, is which one gives the most plausible or best explanation of the data. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle, and I'm going to say that one of the most persistent objections to the kind of thing you're saying here is the supposed difficulty of souls or minds interacting with material brains and bodies. Um, so, you know, more generally, how can we ever think of a non-material thing having a physical effect on you know, a material thing? How does that make sense? Yeah, there's a couple of responses to that. First... Um, we can have very good reason for thinking there is a causal connection between two things, even if we don't know how it works. 
uh, for centuries before molecular theory was discovered, people were confident that a drop in temperature caused water to freeze. They had no idea how. Uh, furthermore, electromagnetism, they thought it had to have the medium of uh, ether. They finally concluded there was no ether, but it was self-propagating. Uh, and Richard Swinburne gives the example, for centuries people have discovered if you stick a pin in them, they'll feel pain. And then there's a very reliable evidence for causation between something physical, sticking a pin in yourself, and something mental, the subjective experience of pain. However, I do think there is more that can be said about how it works. And one of my own views that I've been developing in the last few years is that a key to all this is information. Because information seems to be uh, a common medium between the mental and the physical. Uh, you can have an idea or you can have a volition, which is information in the mental sense. So, for example, you can command your body to raise, raise, you know, raise your arm or something like this. So it exists mentally. And yet it can also exist physically as a motor program, right, which actually raises your arm. Uh, likewise, if you damage your foot, there are certain physical signals. And then uh, you find that that physical information becomes... Uh, mental information in the forms of, of an experience of pain, perhaps a pain in your foot. So one view that I have is I think that the way that human beings are designed, we, we're designed as soul-body unions, is that there is a form of automatic translation between information in the two senses. So this is why when somebody says hands up and you command yourself to raise your hands, they actually do go up. And this is why when you... Uh, you know, you step on a nail and uh, sends a signal, you feel pain. I, I believe that information is the key. And it, it's promising because information can exist in both forms. It can be in books, and yet it can be in the minds of authors and readers. I, I do think that the dualist does need to address this question. You're quite right. Um, but I think that modern information theory looks like it could be the most promising uh, line to take on all that. So would this get rid of the objection that I could imagine people coming up with that, you know, uh, this means that uh, natural causes would be broken? So, uh, for example, the conservation of energy would be contravened if we were to have this mental action into the world. Isn't there also the conservation of information? Is that contravened? I don't think so. And I don't think the conservation energy of energy or other conservation objections are really very impressive because all our evidence for those derives from purely physical systems. As well, there are examples in physics, for example, where you've got particles that have been twinned and their behavior, somehow what one particle does, so does the other. And yet this cannot be through any transfer of energy because it would have to be faster than the speed of, of, of light. I think the primary idea of causation is simply production, making something happen. And it's sort of tendentious to take a model that has been um, derived from purely physical systems and say that, well, that must apply when you're dealing with how the mind, whether it be the human mind or God's mind, uh, interacts with the um, physical. I also, by the way, don't think that um, this involves a violation of the law of nature because, as C.S. Lewis argued, laws are conditionals. They say if you have a certain cause and certain initial conditions, then, other things being equal, you get uh, a certain result. That isn't violated at all if uh, the cause is different or the initial conditions are different uh, because then, of course, other things are not equal. The real issue is whether we're dealing with an open system or a closed system. So if you think 
nature is an open system, then of course God can intervene and do miracles without breaking any laws of nature. He's just introducing something new, which will then obey laws of nature like anything else. And likewise with the, with the mind, uh, if our brain is an open system, then the soul is introducing something new, and once it does, that also will follow the uh, laws of nature. So you're saying that all the laws of nature then have this kind of hidden clause, uh, all other things being equal. We don't, we don't actually say that, but that's sort of assumed whenever we state a law. Yeah, it is, and it's particularly clear when you look at the way that you know Newton's laws are actually used in, in, in practice, and you have to bring in idealizations, like suppose there's a vacuum or a frictionless plane and no other forces operating. None of those laws hold in an absolute unconditional sense. They all hold so long as there are no other forces operating. Of course, that's the whole question. If one thinks the mind can do something new, then other things aren't equal. Something else is operating. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a flexibility in the definition of these laws, which means they're actually not contradicted. Yeah, the mythology of of the modern materialist is to think that laws make things happen. Uh, actually, um, you always have to actually have a cause, and then the law will map it to an effect. But the law doesn't produce the cause. This is like somebody who thinks that their tap actually secretes or produces water. In fact, it's just that there's a system of pipes, and when you open the tap, the water appears. So as, as Lewis argued, laws are really just patterns. If you've got some events, then they get mapped to other events. But they don't themselves tell you what events you will get they actually can come from uh, other sources. And there's one thing that I think stops a lot of us thinking in these terms, and that is this uh, way of approaching investigation called methodological naturalism, which kind of in, in its you know its hardest form says that you must always and you must only look for natural causes for anything that you're looking at. How fundamental do you think that is to uh, sort of shackling the research processes that are going on in academia? Well, I think it is. I mean, on the one hand, methodological naturalism is a very reasonable rule of thumb if you are investigating unintelligent causes. So, for example, if you're saying, well, if they start with these chemicals, what ones will I end up with? There's really no reason to bring in intelligent causes in that case. But if one's investigating historical events, which which include, by the way, human actions, notice that when we're doing a murder investigation, we consider, well, could it be a matter of necessity or chance, accidental death, or is it deliberate homicide? We are enabled to infer agency uh, in that case. And the same thing when we do archaeology, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, work on artificial intelligence, which would accept certain kinds of behavior as pointing to an intelligence if they occurred. So for one thing, I don't think that methodological naturalism actually is used universally. But in certain sensitive areas, it seems to be required as a sort of a priori view when it really it shouldn't be. Um, because logically, if in fact an intelligent cause is the real one, by refusing to consider that possibility, it may mean that we will never find the truth. And this would be like the pirate who says, I, I won't check there on the island for the treasure uh, because it says on the map, here there be dragons. Well, that doesn't mean the treasure is not there. And refusing to look in a certain place for a possible cause is no reason at all to think that is not the the true or the best answer. And and, and this comes down really to the logic of inference to best explanation. 
The inference, the best explanation, is only as good as the range of explanations that you can consider. So if you disallow some, this is rather like saying, yes, I just won in a foot race against other slow people like me. And so what comes as the winner could be the best of a bad lot. And so methodological naturalism runs a serious risk that what's identified as the best explanation is simply the best naturalistic explanation, which could be abysmal. It could be an absolutely atrocious explanation, really. And it could be that one that appealed to intelligent causes or an immaterial mind uh, was actually far superior. Mm -hmm. And yet I get the impression that so often the possibly far superior explanation is often referred to as a gap. So like this God of the gaps idea that you're never allowed to make an inference to something that's non-natural, that's supernatural or anything like that, because, oh, 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 that's that's just a gap in our understanding. One day there will be some natural explanation that will fill that gap in. But that needn't necessarily be the case, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, that promissory naturalism, as it's called, where you issue a promissory note and say, well, we'll get to it later, maybe, you know, next year, maybe a million years. Um, and, and this basically allows naturalism to function as a faith because you don't have to have any evidence for your view because you can say, well, we'll have an answer in the end. But the other thing is, gap arguments certainly can be bad. They could be arguments from ignorance. We don't know what it is, therefore, my favored cause did it. But everybody can do that. There's materialism of the gaps, just as much as there's God of the gaps. A good gap argument doesn't work that way, though. The way it works is to identify what the normal course of nature is normally capable of. Then you find, oh, something additional happened that it couldn't have produced. What would fill the gap? So, for example, you might know that I have no artistic ability uh, whatsoever, which is true, by the way. (laughs) Now, let's suppose, though, that I show you an amazing PowerPoint presentation of Impressionist art. Well, then there's a gap, isn't there? There's a gap between my ability and what you see there. Okay, and then you start to say, all right, well, then the most reasonable explanation is something which is known to have the power to fill that gap. And the creative genius of the Impressionist artist would certainly have that ability. So I think the same thing is true now. When we are looking at the brain, um, if we conclude that there are certain things going on which we don't think that the passive processes going on in the brain alone could explain, but we're confident that we have evidence that intelligent people actually do these things, then we're not arguing from ignorance. We're arguing from knowledge, both of what brains can and cannot do and of knowledge of what an intelligent agent can do that's more. That's the same point that Stephen Meyer has made in defense of intelligent design in biology and and cosmology. Uh, A good gap argument always is based on knowledge uh, of what nature can do and of what intelligence could do that's in addition. And so sometimes people would say, well, you know, if you take a position like that, then you're cutting off the possibility of future research. But would you agree that this is actually provisional? Yeah. This conclusion is just like any other kind of research. This is our, our best knowledge to date. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous for people to make this claim because it, it, it suggests a spurious finality that nobody could defend in science. The inference of the best explanation is the inference to the best current explanation Uh, based on the actual data we have now and the actual theories that have been proposed so far. Obviously, new data could change everything. Just like in a murder mystery, you think it's the butler, but then you realize, no, it can't be. They have an alibi. And new theories can be proposed. So when people currently say 
that the best explanation, given all we know, is that there is an immaterial mind with free will, uh, or there is an intelligent designer of the cosmos. They are simply appealing to the data and the theories that are, are, are available now. And they're not saying that it has a final answer, and they're certainly not saying that other scientists cannot hold contrary views and try to show that they're correct. It seems to me that that comes from a sort of a political desire to silence certain people by claiming, oh, well, if you allow those kind of people in, somehow we'll have a theocracy or, or other, you know, quite oh. preposterous suggestions. Mm -hmm. Still, it is quite something to be able to say that maybe such things are the best explanation. That's uh, quite an impressive contradiction to the culture in which we live in many ways. Um, I know that we're very, very pushed for time, um, but I would like to ask you to tell us just about something that you've been developing called the ontological argument from reason, because it is connected to what we've been talking about here. So could you give us a very brief idea as to what that's about and why you think that's an important argument? Yeah, the ontological argument from reason is simply an analysis of what's required to make sense of human reasoning. And I argue that you really do need a mental substance. What a mental substance gives you is unity at a time. There is one thing that can entertain all the reasons in an argument. And it also gives you identity over time. So, for example, that simple case I gave before, a subject thinks A equals B and B equals C. It's critical, it's the same subject who has both thoughts. It won't help if Jack thinks A equals B and Sarah thinks B equals C. Neither of them have the reason to draw any conclusion from what they know. And this is a problem, by the way, for materialism because um, they describe the brain as really existing in these um, parallel tracks and, and Daniel Dennett says that there is no um, one place in the brain where all of these tracks really um, come together. So we need unity at a time. So there's one subject that has and thinks of both reasons. But we also need that subject to exist over the time it takes to draw the conclusion. Because otherwise, it would be like Jack believing A equals B and B equals C. And then Sarah concluding that A equals C. Well, Jack doesn't survive long enough to draw the conclusion. And Sarah, although she gets the right answer, does not derive it from her own reasons. And so, again, you don't have one being that can be credited with actually doing the reasoning. And, uh, you know, William Hasker has thought about this. Um, so has J.P. Moreland. And I think it's a, it's, it's a real problem for the materialistic view because they don't really describe a convincing owner or bearer of our reasons. What you actually get is a brain that's in flux and it's in various stages and there's nothing really that we can see from a materialistic point of view that unifies those states or exists as the same thing over time. And is that related at all to Alvin Plantinga's epistemological argument from reason? Yeah, there's a relationship between the two. His argument from reason is, in a way, premised on the ontology, the, the weakness of the materialist ontology, that it's not sufficient for us to conclude that we have reliable minds. So in Plantinga's um, argument, he points out, well, naturalistic evolution really only cares about you producing adaptive behavior, and it's indifferent to whether your beliefs are mostly true. Um, and so, for example, so long as your body runs away from uh, lions, it doesn't matter if you uh, believe they are shrubberies. It doesn't. The actual content of your belief does not have to be true 
so long as it produces behavior that enables you to uh, survive and reproduce. You know, there have been various attempts by naturalists to try and, uh, you know, rebut that objection. But I think in the end, the, the objection is stronger than their, their rebuttals. Oh, well, that's, that's fascinating in itself, actually. And I, there are things that I'd like to ask you about that, but uh, we are running out of time. And uh, so I won't be able to ask you that, unfortunately. Um, so we'll have to ponder those things in our own minds. Um, and in fact, perhaps do some research for ourselves. And so this is where I'd like to ask you if you can recommend any resources in general, and in fact, any of your own resources that would help people to look into these kinds of areas. Well, certainly, as you mentioned, I, I wrote um, the book Agents Under Fire, uh, Materialism and the Rationality of Science. That was uh, about, about 10 years ago. And I've also done a number of follow-up papers, many of which have been in the journal Philosophia Christi. Uh, most recent one was a special issue of Philosophia Christi on neuroscience and uh, the soul. And I've published chapters in other books as well. And I can probably make available for your listeners some articles that I have done because some of them might be difficult for uh, people to obtain in other ways. Right now, by the way, I'm, I'm working on a successor to Agents Under Fire, which is tentatively called Agents Unbound. And while Agents Under Fire is, is really kind of a withering critique of the materialist, the um, Agents Unbound is trying to explore constructively and positively the mental powers mm -hmm. of the soul. And is that any easier to read than your than your previous one? <laughs> I don't know. I've tried to do over the years some popular um, articles. It's, it's it's very difficult. You see, the thing is, if you want to make progress in the academy, you have to write as they write, which means difficult, technical, rigorous. Yeah. But then, if you want to actually reach out to you know people who are not specialists in that area, you have to um, write things which are more straightforward. And I think the Christian philosophers should do both. But we can't only do the popular stuff because then we make no impact on the academy. We, we have to fight this battle on, on, on both fronts. Well, indeed, if you will send me some of those links that you mentioned of articles that you've written, I'll put those in the show notes and people can uh, take a good look at those. And so I know that you've got to go and lecture actually in 10 minutes. So uh, I will say, uh, Dr. Manuji, it has been fascinating speaking to you. It's, it's been quite a demanding conversation, as I think will be quite clear to everybody who's listening. Um, I'm very glad that I had plenty of coffee before we started to get those uh, brain cells going. Yeah. But uh, it worked. It woke me up. Um, so as I say, it has been very, very interesting speaking with you. And uh, thank you ever so much indeed for coming on the program oh thank you so much julian for having you this this was this was fun thank you very much 